Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here at LSE, and it's really a very great pleasure to welcome you all to the school for tonight's talk by Professor Abhijit Banerjee. Uh, Abhijit's going to speak for about 50 minutes, and then we're going to move straight to question and answers. Um, now is the time, please, to make sure that you've switched off your mobile phone or any other irritating device that you might have about you. Um, it's, it's a particular pleasure to introduce Abhijit tonight, um, because as many of you will know, he's been at the heart of something very special in the fields of development economics and development policy, along with his partner, Esther Duflo. Again, as many of you will know, Abhijit and Esther founded MIT's Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, which most of us know as JPAL, in 2003. And from that base, they've pushed fellow development workers and academics to think again, which is a phrase used in his book, their book, about some of the big aid, no aid nostrums proposed by the likes of Jeffrey Sachs on the one hand and Bill Easterly and Dambisa Moyo on the other. In particular, they've helped to pioneer the use of rigorous field trials of different development interventions, different ways, say, of trying to improve primary education or primary health care, always with a view to evaluating which treatment works best. Now, out of this work, which is hugely original, hugely informative, which has mainly been conducted in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, has come their book, Poor Economics, a radical rethinking of the way to fight global poverty. Um, it's a great book. Uh, it's a hugely interesting book, and I think it's no surprise that it won the Financial Times Goldman Sachs Book of the Year in 2011, for 2011. And tonight, I think Abhijit is going to develop one particular theme from the book, uh, the one dealing with barefoot hedge managers and reluctant entrepreneurs. Uh, but he will be signing copies of the book afterwards. We're not sure yet whether it's going to be on the stage or just outside. Somebody's going to pass me a note, apparently. Uh, and, you know, I would urge everybody to, to read the book it's in its entirety if you haven't done so already. It's a terrific read. It only remains for me to say that Abhijit Banerjee is the Ford Foundation International Professor of Economics at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, that he was the first winner in 2009 of the Infosys Prize, and that he is, of course, naturally an advisor to a very wide range of international organizations, including the World Bank and the Government of India. Abhijit, it's a great pleasure to have you with us at LSE tonight. So, point of clarification to start with. Uh, I don't know how I, I must have been sleeping when I, when I said that I was going to speak about reluctant entrepreneurs only, because that's not what this talk is going to be about. So, you'll forgive me if that's what you expected. It'll be about the book. Um, it's a talk that I hope 
you weren't here when I spoke the last time. It's going to be a very similar talk. Uh, <laughs> so uh, if, you, if it is and you feel like uh, you could do, use your time better, you, sh you should. Um, <laughs> um, so this book, this is a book that um, I think the best way to describe this book is that it's, it's a book about um, how, how um, maybe not to think about development economics. So it's a book that starts, in a sense, by illustrating that point. Um, it's a bit unfair to Esther, but I'll use a story from her life that's in the book. Um, the story is that when she was five, she, was, um, she got a comic book from her parents, and the comic book was about Mother Teresa. And so, you know, she read the comic book, and as Esther always does, she gleaned everything from the book, including what was perhaps not in the book. The fact that, so she came to the, somehow the discovery that in the city of Calcutta, where I was brought up, um, uh, there was every, every uh, person lived in one square meter of space. And from that, she constructed a kind of a vision of the city of Calcutta, which was sort of like a checkerboard, like you know, lots of squares, one meter square, with a person inside it. So she had this vision of this extended checkerboard with you know, people filling every slot in there. Uh, and that was, a, that was a, I mean, that was a, um, how she remembered it. Of course, presumably, as she grew up, she was less uh, persuaded by that image, but I think she, I remember the day she first landed in Calcutta, because I actually met her at the airport, and we were going to do some work, but in the meanwhile, I saw her looking around and noticing that there was actually lots of open spaces. There were no one sitting there, so, and she looked a little uncomfortable, I think, along the way. I mentioned this, this because in some sense, it's kind of, it's a, uh, representative in a way of how we often think of the poor. We think of them in sort of one stereotypical gesture or the other. So sort of one, one cliche uh, that describes them. And what, what I we would like to do in this talk is, uh, and in the book is in a sense try to go beyond the cliche. So ask the question, what happens if we actually think beyond uh, the particular um, pat particular uh, assumptions that go into the into all, so much of policy. So the I think the, the problem with sort of in the end we always have to sim simplify. There's nothing wrong with cliches. We we need to simplify. The world is complicated, but I think if you get the wrong ones, then you get the wrong story. And I think um, what I want to do is sort of start with the a set of examples. In fact, this entire talk is a set of examples of how, I think, simplistic uh, formulations of how the poor behave or have led us to generate uh, theories of, um, you know, of how we should do policy, which then have monumentous consequences, uh, often misleading. So, uh, so that's that's what I'm going to. Uh, spend my time on. So l let me start by the first example. The first 
so here's a policy point that people people um, it's sort of one of the axioms if you like of um, of a lot of development work is that uh, you know poor people uh, you shouldn't give away things to poor people because if you do that then they will uh, they will start um, you know that's going to spoil them and they'll use they, they won't actually use them well and so you're going to get waste and you need to price things this is one of the of uh, one of the kind of the axioms of a lot of development economics has been for a very long time is make sure that people are paying prices and now let's go behind that and sort of uh, so think of what what that um, Where's that coming out of? So that's coming out of a sort of a, a, beha uh, a behavioral model where pe people are sort of understand what they need to do. They are fully sort of cognizant of the of the benefits of whatever they're doing, but they they may then decide that well you know if if this thing is if if I if if so when when you offer something to them uh, that's too cheap, they'll take it, but then they'll bite, might actually take it even if they don't need it. So if they even if they think the benefits are small, they take it, but then they don't necessarily use it. And the examples that are often given are of the kind that um, you know that uh, I think the example that's often given is you know kids playing with condoms that were distributed to, by family planning programs or something. And that's, that's the kind of example that kind of populates people's minds and then people talk about, you know, you have to price things. Um, here, the, the particular problem that we were interested in was um, immunization. How, how do you get people immunized? Immunization is one of the obvious and cheap wins in the world most obvious cheap wins in the world. It it's, uh, saves lives, saves lives for the next generation. If mothers get uh, measles or mumps when the, their child is in the womb, that can kill a child. So it's, it's, it saves lives over multiple generations. It's, a, it's, it's both extremely inexpensive and very effective. And in many places in the world, not used or not used very much. So here in... in, in uh, this is a part of India where we, we did a lot of work. It's, it's in the west of India, it's in Rajasthan. Uh, and in this area, when we started working, the, f the, pop the fraction of the population that was fully immunized was 2%. Only 2% of the children actually had got all the shots they needed. Now, and uh, when we discovered that, um, by doing a large survey, um, we went around to the local, you know, kind of the, the people, various repositories of local wisdom, the, the NGOs, the government people, the doctors, and basically two views emerged out of that conversation. One view was, you know, uh, this is all because the government is so bad that this didn't come from the government, obviously. It came from the other people. Uh, the government is so bad that you can't get immunized. You know, these people are all ready to get their children immunized, but it's too difficult because, they, you know, you go to the health center, the health center is always closed because, you know, the, 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 the incentives are wrong. And so there's this whole conversation on one side. 
The others, and then there was just the government people and a lot of actually even people outside the government, there was the other view which said that you don't understand. These people don't want to get immunized. These are traditionalists. They believe in a different system of medicine. They don't believe in immunization. Immunization offends their sensibility. So these were the two views that we were told. And in some sense, there was a, we, 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 we really, I mean, what do we know? So we figured that, well, we might as well try some things out. And the thing we decided to try out were the two, uh, two treatments, if you like. Two, so one set of villages, we were three group, we randomly chose villages. Some, one group of villages was supposed to be uh, the control, which where we, when the existing system of immunization delivery was maintained. One set of villages uh, was meant to be, to deal with this idea that as soon as we start delivering immunization reliably, People will just flock and get immunized. So that was that was the um, that was treatment one, and that's where how how was that done? Well, the NGO said we're going to make sure that every month on a day that we predict, so third Monday, we're going to have a camp in the village where somebody will deliver immunization, and we monitored that very carefully. It was done very very reliably. Almost every time they, they said they'll have the camp, they had the camp. And when they didn't have the camp, they actually informed the village ahead of time that there won't be a camp so that the villagers were not disappointed. So it was done very efficiently. That was first intervention. Second intervention, which everybody, I think, made fun of, was in addition to uh, everybody else made fun of, uh, 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 in addition to uh, having these camps, if you got yourself immunized at the camps, we'll give you one kilo of dried beans. Okay, so this, this was the, the idea was that it's going to be a little token gift to the mother, which will make the whole occasion a bit more memorable to the mother. Okay, so that, that was our theory. So what happened? So what happened was, um, I'm going to, so this is this is the background. This is this is the area. It's Udaipur district. It's really stunningly beautiful, by the way. Uh, so th this was the one view, which is that the you, you can't go to the you can't get immunized. Uh, the other so here's a closed subcenter. This this was the experiment, if you like. So if you like, the, this is sort of what a random some random allocation looks like. There were a lot of the white villages where nothing happened. Red is where the both things happened, and blue is where the just the uh, camps happened. So that, that that's basically the experiment. And what happened? So in the baseline, as you would expect, all these villages had exactly the same fraction of children immunized. That's not a surprise. That's how it's supposed to be. A lottery does that. It gives you make sure that every, all the places are the same. What happens afterwards? Well, turns out that even when you don't do anything, things change. That's something to remember always. <laughs> <laughs> so these villages, nothing changed. Uh, when you did the camps, which is sort of making sure that you know, delivery, we didn't get 100%, we got 17%. So even when it was guaranteed that you could get immunized on a given day, you got only 17%. When you give them the lentils, or the dried lentils, you get the, the you get 38 percent. So that was a more than a doubling 
by you know giving people a kilo of dried beans. So, sort of. Now, why why do I? How does that going back to the theme I started with? How does that link to the theme? Well, the, here's a striking fact: if you gave the people the dried beans, then the cost per immunization was twenty-seven dollars. If you didn't give it, it cost fifty dollars. So, if you actually gave things away, things actually cost less. Why? Because the whole, once you have a camp, you just want it full. You want people to come. So, if you actually gave things away, things actually work out to be cheaper. So, then if you didn't give things away, and so sort of thinking, go back to this whole conversation about you know should should we should we. Um, you know, price things or not. Basically, this is saying the reverse. You know, rather than pricing things, they may be often you might save money actually by not pricing them, by making them cheaper or making them even paying people to do things. You might actually get more benefits by doing that than by actually getting them to trying to get them to pay. So in this particular case, we got tried to get them to pay. I think nobody would have showed up. So uh, the some some sense the point the general point I was trying to make here is that you know we start with some psychological model which sort of we believe in for reasons which have nothing to do with the reality on the ground and then we infer policy from it and then the policy sometimes doesn't work and then we are you know disappointed and that's a pattern that we'll see so this this is an example where I think. If the received ideology is very much about you know you should price things, um, and you see that in fact we went in exactly the opposite direction. We started giving things away and giving gifts with them, and that's how we got the cost down. Um, let me move on to another example. So this this was a quote uh, from um, uh, somebody who we met in the process of uh, I guess doing some research in, in Morocco. Uh, he. He was, uh, was standing in front of his house, um, trying to um, make conversation. And we didn't really have much to ask him. So we kept asking him, well, you know, uh, usual economics questions. Suppose uh, you had a little bit more money, what would you do with it? He said, well, I'm going to eat more. And if you had a little bit more money, what would you do? Oh, I'm going to eat more. Uh, and so you know, we were convinced that this was a starving man. And maybe he was. But uh, we went into his house, and we see this television, a parabolic antenna, and a DVD player right in front. And I said, what's that? And he, he doesn't bite an eyelid. He says very blandly, television is more important than food. And I think he, there was a, there's a deep truth in that, which, um, which uh, is, uh, I think, very, very important to appreciate which is, it's, it's very simple once you think about it. If, I don't know how many of you spent a night or a night in a village uh, in a poor country. So I have spent many. And the thing about it, frankly, is that they're extraordinarily boring. Because there's nothing to do. I mean, there's no movie theater, no concert, no. Uh, and you basically, all you do is you go to the local tea shop or coffee shop or um, 
you know, hoot shop, uh, as the case may be. And you sit there, and you sit there with the same people you sat there for years. So you know all of them, all of their jokes, all of their, you know, stories. And so somebody says something, and you mumble something, and you silent, and you kill the mosquitoes for five minutes. <laughs> and then, then you start again, and, and that's how it goes. It's, that's, that's, that's sort of how uh, life is. And the reason why I think the, the insight the man was offering us, which I think we, we, em, we needed to embrace, is that that's not a, if, you know, in their life, the, 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 if we, you know, the space for pleasure needed to be filled, that there was something that, that all of us need, not just nutrition, sustenance, education, all those good things, but also pleasure. And if, if we didn't have a space for pleasure, then life wouldn't be worth living. So you, you, I think it's psychologically unrealistic to think of people as being uh, sort of these nutrition and education generating machines for their family, uh, which uh, uh, sort of programmed to just get the maximum out of their dollars investment in health and education. And that's, as a, as a psychological model of how people behave, I think that's an extremely uh, inaccurate model. That's a fact that we kind of knew before. Uh, we kind of knew that people don't actually spend, uh, don't actually spend uh, their, you know, a lot of their earnings on, on food. We, we knew that, you know, even very poor people spend, you know, no more than 60 or 70 percent on food. So in many countries, the fraction of, of uh, earnings spent on food uh, is, um, is less than 50 percent. So uh, it's quite, quite often the fra fraction of, uh, of spent, even if you live under a dollar a day, you don't spend nearly even 50 cents of that on food. And that's, we could be judgmental and say, well, you guys, you should be getting better nutrition. Why aren't you eating more? But we could also realize the psychological needs that generate that, and that come from a particular desire for having a diversified life, a life where it has a space for pleasure. Um, it's a very nice experiment in China, which sort of, so why do we care about that? I mean, uh, why do we care about the fact that poor people don't necessarily, uh, don't necessarily uh, want to, they don't see themselves as starving. So they, it's, a, it's a very much a, a cliche that, you know, which equates poor with hungry. So it's a standard uh, way we think about the poor is that they're hungry, but they, the poor themselves don't believe that. Whether they should or should not, I'll come back to. But let's just. So uh, it's important to understand what, what that, why that's important. It's important to understand why, what the consequences of that are. So there's a very nice experiment done in China where um, Rob Jensen, who's a researcher who used to be at Harvard, um, now is at UCLA, what he did was he. Um, subsidized, see, gave people, a random set of people, vouchers to go buy rice, um, cheap, so that they got the rice much cheaper. Rice was the staple diet in this area. Rice, they were getting cheaper. Idea was that this would improve nutrition. What happened? They stopped eating rice. Uh, why? Because they could now 
buy rice a lot cheaper, which meant they saved a lot more money. What did they do with the money? They bought shrimps and pork. Uh, why? Because that's much, it tastes better. That's what they wanted to do all along. And uh, they wanted to have the rice and the pork. They were just, the shrimps and the pork, they were eating rice because they had nothing else to eat. So as soon as it was affordable, their calorie consumption actually went down as a result of this. Why is that important? Because a huge number of countries, including my own, India, is, is committed to the idea that the way we get nutrition to the poor is by subsidizing food. But if this experiment is telling us something, it's telling us that that's ne not necessarily going to work. It might very well be that if you subsidize food, people will just spend less on it and save the money and buy other things. You, you really have to think of a way to do it so that people actually eat the food. You have to find mechanisms for persuading them that they need to eat the food. Now what makes that really complicated is that if you look at the data, malnutrition is a huge problem in a lot of, lots of parts of the world, especially in South Asia. Uh, South Asia, 50% of children ha are, are 40 something percent, 46% of the children are severely, are I would say, or moderately malnutrited. So extremely uh, worrying numbers you see in South Asia, um, not as worrying, but pretty worrying numbers in Africa as well. So nutrition is a huge problem, but it's not a problem perceived by the people who are doing the eating. They see themselves as living a life. They want to buy the cell phone. They want to buy a new piece of clothing. They want to go out and have fun one evening. Uh, and uh, we're contending on against that when we say that you know we're going to m improve nutrition, we'll need to work around that. It's not something that we can just take as given. If it's not a matter of dumping food on people and then they are machines which absorb the food. If you give people food they don't want, they'll sell it. They're, they're very good at selling food um, when they don't want it. So, the, so you, you have to take into account the reality of how people want to behave. And I think there's nothing wrong in the way they want to behave. They want to behave in a way that we would want to behave, which is have some pleasure in their life. Uh, let me give you another example. So education is an area where um, you know, when you say uh, sort of in recent, the last few years, uh, have been both uh, years of sort of celebration and heartbreak. Celebration because we have suddenly seem to solve the problem of getting children into school. School, uh, school enrollment rates are heading upwards 95% in many countries. So the problem of getting children into school seems to be mostly solved. Um, you now, into school is a complicated word because these children may very well be enrolled in school, but they may not be showing up. And there's a lot of evidence they're not showing up. But nonetheless, there is no, parents seem to be willing to enroll their children in school. That doesn't seem to be the problem. What, so the, that was the good news. The bad news, which came almost at the same time, sadly, is that they were in school, but they were not learning. So the average fourth grader in India cannot do, read a second grade level text or do second, first grade level divisions. So you can't divide 21 by 7. This is a very large survey called ASAR, which has been done now for five years running, and you find exactly the same thing year after year. Same pattern in Pakistan, same pattern in Kenya, same pattern in Ghana. Same survey has been done in a number of countries. You find exactly the same pattern. Children in school are not learning. Now, wh why are they not learning? What's, what's going on? Uh, 
Now, part of it is he's drawing pictures. Uh, <laughs> so here's some numbers. These are fourth graders. 40% can read a paragraph, 30% can do simple division. So what's going wrong? And you know, there's a whole litany of views on, on, on what's going to solve, uh, solve this problem, going from you know, giving girls sanitary pads to uh, eliminating school fees to uh, conditional cash transfers. Everybody has their own theory of what's go going wrong. Uh, now, one thing that's very striking is, um, so we, we've been looking at this for a while, and uh, the thing that seems to be coming out of that research is, is a very simple insight. Uh, what's going wrong? What's going wrong is, turns out, extremely basic. Uh, it's simply that, the ch that what you're trying to treat the ch teach the children is the children not prepared to learn. Why? Because essentially the school system decides what needs to be taught on a basis, on some model which is fixed irrespective of who's doing the learning. So they, the school system has a syllabus handed down from top. Indeed, by now, uh, in India, for example, under the right to education law, it's illegal not to cover the syllabus. So syllabus says in first, uh, in first month you have to learn uh, writing, uh, then you start reading, then, then in third grade you have to start learning social studies, in fifth grade you have to learn, start learning science. So there's a whole catalog of things that the system expects people to learn. Where's that expectation coming from? It's coming from a colonial education system that was designed to create an elite. That was the point of the colonial education system was that very few people would, would go to school, but those people would be an elite that would sort of work for the colonial state. That's the basis of the education system. Take that education system, transplant it in a setting where you want universal education, and you get a disaster. And this is the same disaster so you see in country after country. Basically, kids are in third grade. They have not learned what they were supposed to have learned in first grade. What are they doing? They're looking blankly at their uh, teacher's face, and the teacher's saying stuff that makes no sense to them. And they sit there and sit there till they start getting and growing legs and then they stop coming to school and that's why in many of the states in India for example school attendance rates are close to 50% so half the children on a given day don't show up why because school is extraordinarily frustrating think of being in a lecture which was given in uh, Swahili when you don't speak Swahili that's sort of what school must feel like to most of the children uh, so at some level the message, uh, we, this recipe is very simple. We've done a series of randomized control trials, mostly in India, Kenya, and now in Ghana. All of them have the same idea, which is teach the children what they need to learn. How do you do that? You can recruit in volunteers who are high school educated children, uh, kids, you know, 16, 18 year olds, give them two days to a week's training let them lose on, the, on these children. The only thing that matters is they're very well motivated. They're, they know that their goal is to not teach science, but to teach these children what they don't know. So if they don't know how to read, teach them reading. So that, with that specific 
experiment we've done six or seven times in different ways, slightly different ways. Every time it works. It works dramatically. And even more interestingly, you do that experiment with school teachers. The, te the same people who don't teach them in school, but you tell them, we did an experiment which was during a summer, during the summer, which was summer school, and we taught, uh, we, the teachers were given a day's, two days training to teach children sort of basic skills. When you liberate the teachers themselves from teaching the syllabus, and you let them teach what the children need to learn, you get massive gains in learning, really spectacular gains. Even the teachers who are much maligned and often thought of as being basically you know, incapable of teaching are fully capable of teaching. The system just demands a kind of teaching that's not possible to deliver. So, it's, it's, uh, so I go back to this, what I was saying, less here would be more. If, if the school, if the expectations were scaled down to being realistic, given that these children come from backgrounds where their parents are not capable of helping them at home, their parents are either semi-literate or illiterate, they don't have a lot of time at home to do their homework, you, the amount of material you're aiming to teach them is just unrealistic. So you either have to have longer school days or you have to scale down the amount of material you're teaching. But you can't try to do what you're trying to do right now, which is to teach, teach uh, people what they can't absorb, because they're not given enough time, not given enough help. Uh, it's a, so it's, it's a, again, uh, what I want to emphasize here is that this, this, the whole thing comes from a, a view of education which is sort of fixed, essentially, uh, you sort of, with no uh, sort of rooting in the reality these people live. So the education is, people must learn history in third grade. That's the theory. The theory is starts from what is what we think people should know, not what they can learn, what we can teach, what the system can be made to do. So it, it comes from this the same idea always that we fix ideas it is sort of independent of the context and then we run with them. Let me give you a couple more examples. Uh, so here's another one. So here's a, this, this is the one that, in a sense, was advertised. So let me spend a little bit more time on it. Uh, um, so this is a familiar site. This one, I think, is from Accra. But uh, you know, the, it, what is absolutely and totally true is the poor are entrepreneurs in the classic sense of the word in huge numbers. So if you look at the OECD, roughly 12% of the population describe themselves as being self-employed. Self-employed meaning that they bear the risk, they put up their capital, uh, they, whatever it is, they, they produce themselves. So that's, in that sense, if you ask people in the OECD, the 12% say they are self-employed. You ask that question in developing countries, you get much higher numbers, especially among the poor. So this is people who live under a dollar a day. Let me start with the uh, urban and go back to the rural. Um, actually, let me start with this. this is fine. So first, agriculture itself is absolutely a form of entrepreneurship. It's you bear all the risk. If your crop fails, you starve. You put up the capital. You do the work. It's, it's as entrepreneurial as anything else. 
And you look at the data, something like the rural population, something like 75% in many countries, but certainly above 50% in many countries, have at least one person self-employed in, in agriculture. These are households who live under a dollar a day. So something like half the households in many of these countries are entrepreneurs in agriculture. What is more striking and less known uh, is that if you look at the rural households in many countries, uh, also close to, you know, often 30, 40 percent of the households are self-employed outside agriculture. So they're also running a rural households, so farming households typically, are also doing some other business. So what is absolutely true is that there is enormous number of businesses run by the poor. That's, that's a, that's, uh, and if you look at urban households, you see a lot more uh, non-agricultural businesses, not surprisingly. So poor run businesses. The question, the, the immediate and I think misleading presumption that comes from that is that poor run businesses Given that it's so difficult for them to run businesses, they must do it because they have some special talent. So the Muhammad Yunus famously said, poor are natural entrepreneurs. Um, now what does a natural entrepreneur mean? It means somebody who has a special gift. Now, indeed, one way to think about it is, you know, is ask the question, why are these people in business? And uh, you might think, much more difficult for these people to do in business than somebody richer. Obviously, they have less capital, they have less tolerance for risk because they are, you know, they are going to they're going to starve if the business fails. They they have less skills. You show see that in the businesses they actually start. Most businesses start don't use um, many skills, and they tend to be the same businesses. Most most poor people, uh, when you give them a loan, they buy a cow, or a goat, or uh, they buy some tomatoes to sell, or they start a little store where they sell biscuits and batteries. It, it's really not the case that, you know, you see a lot of different businesses they are in. The number of businesses they are in is very, very limited. Most, most poor people are, are sort of, if they're entrepreneurs, they're entrepreneurs in a very constrained way. They're doing very predictable things. Uh, that's not, uh, the reason I say that is that in some sense, when you look at that, you would say, so why are they in business? And I think one answer could be that they really, they, that they, they feel it in themselves to be entrepreneurial, they're natural entrepreneurial, and they're natural entrepreneurs. Uh, that's just who they want to be. An alternative view is, uh, comes from asking people, what do you want your children to be when they grow up? So we actually are, did this. Uh, when you ask people what they want to be when, when they grow up, uh, these are the answers you get. So 75% want their children to get a government job. And this is, we've done this in several places, and we even to simply, to make sure that they don't just internalize their current constraints, we say, imagine you won a, won a lottery, and so you have some money you can invest in a business. The answer still comes back. We want them to be employees. We want ideally government employees, maybe a private sector employee, but an employee. We don't want our children to have a business. And we hear this all the time from these people. We see, I'll come back to other evidence consistent with that. Um, we see, um, we, we, and yet we somehow assume that they want to be entrepreneurs. 
So let me start by now saying why, 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 are, they, why are they in business? Well, they're in business because they can't find a job, because there's no one who's going to hire them, because there aren't enough other bigger businesses that are hiring. That's the reason why they're most poor people in business, because they, they didn't get a job. And uh, I, I, uh, one of, that includes many interesting businesses, including uh, I once interviewed a, a doctor who, uh, who turned out to have a high school degree and explained to me that um, he, when he got his high school degree, he couldn't get a job as a do uh, with his degree, so he decided to start a business of a doctor. <laughs> so, so people go into businesses because they can't find a job. Uh, I think that's, that's the dominant reason. Once you believe that, then it's very easy to see a, a, another um, fact that uh, you, you easy to predict one other fact, which otherwise seems surprising, which is that when people get microloans, they don't really do very much to expand their businesses. Some number of them, if you, so we did a randomized experiment where some neighborhoods in the city of Hyderabad got um, microloans, 10,000 rupees, that's <coughs> like $250, 150 pounds, something like that. Uh, so they, they got uh, microloans, other people didn't, and we could see what that does to businesses. So the first and most striking fact about w what comes out of that is that most of that money goes into buying televisions, uh, mm, CD players, DVDs, um, pressure cookers, refrigerators, repairing the house, paying down loans, very little. Um, the average household, uh, the per capita spending on, of these households on business durables is uh, per capita per month spending of these households on, on business durables is of the order of 10 rupees. So if you, you know, uh, that's, that's the order of magnitude they're spending. They're getting 10,000 rupees, they spend 10 rupees per month per capita. So let's say they have five people per family, that's 50 uh, times 12, that's 600. They're, they're spending 600 rupees a dollar on business durables out of 10,000. So that's sort of a, just to get an order of magnitude, they're not spending. This is, this is a fact that we knew actually before because we had once done a calculation of asking how much money would take this particular shop owner to double his inventory. So we valued his inventory. And then we asked, how, how much money will it take to double his inventory? Turned out we, our calculation suggested that we spent 3% less <coughs> on food, he would double his inventory uh, in a year. So just 3%. So why isn't he doubling his in inventory? He's running a shop, why isn't he doubling? 3% is nothing. So in some sense, that goes to this, this very, let me, um, a very nice experiment which sort of reinforces this. So the experiment, what it did was it gave households basically a gift of between 250 and $500. So some households got $250 gift, this was in Sri Lanka. Others got $500. The ones who got $250 invested it and got a good return. The ones who got $500 invested $250 
didn't invest the rest, put the rest into televisions, uh, you know, refrigerators, repairing their roofs. So they recognize that they don't really want to expand their businesses. And that's, so then it's not surprising that when you offer people microcredit, it really doesn't change their uh, earnings. It do, they, don't, they start a few more businesses, but businesses are tiny. Since they're tiny, they don't really do very much to the earnings. So you don't see, so people's earnings don't change, their revenues don't change, their, their consumption doesn't change. And all changes, I mean, earnings may, might change minimally, but it takes over three years, earnings change by a very small amount at best. Uh, so basically, we could have predicted this if we didn't go down this route of saying, well, these poor people, they're starting businesses, they must be entrepreneurial. We had actually looked at how they actually behave. That data was with us. And then we wouldn't have gone on this whole fantasy about how microcredit will make everybody rich. I want to caveat that by saying that I don't, I'm not against microcredit. I think microcredit has done much good. In particular, it's brought interest rates down a lot. But most of the money that goes in, for, come from microcredit doesn't go into businesses. It goes into all kinds of things which people need. And I'm happy that they get their television. Uh, but it's the television that, rather, than the, uh, rather than the business that's the um, main focus of microborrowing. Uh, let me uh, take, one, should I take one more example and then stop. Um, <laughs> So here's, a, here's one that I'm, I'm going to do this quickly. Um, so the last example comes from a slightly different area, not so much economics as politics. And uh, people often talk about why, why there's so much, why democracy doesn't deliver. And one of the explanations people often provide is that it doesn't deliver because there's so many ethnic divisions. People, people would rather uh, vote for somebody who's from their own neighborhood, even if they, he's a crook. That, or from their own ethnicity if, uh, because he's a crook, uh, even if he's a crook, then some a good guy who's from somewhere else. So basically, you, you get this perverse dynamic of you know, bad guys winning elections on the strength of their ethnic alliances. So that's a, that's a sort of standard uh, theory of why democracy doesn't work. And we went to, we're interested in the question, uh, this is in the state of UP, um, which is notorious for its ethnic politics in U India. This is the summer of 2007, just before the last elections in UP. And what we did was extremely mundane. We asked the question, imagine we go ahead and told people, don't vote on caste, do people listen? Just that, so the, here's the poster, just to see, just to convince you that we were, the post, this was the poster. The poster said, if voters stop prioritizing ethnic issues, then everyone will win. That's what it said. Um, that's, the, that's in Hindi. This is the translation. Uh, was not on the poster. So that, that, that poster was, um, you know, uh, basically shows a, a Hindu man, a Muslim man, and a, a lower caste man, all of whom are sort of kind of claiming votes on their uh, ethnic um, ethnic um, agenda, and he is now the on the on the right is the guy who's like uh, supposed to be the good guy, and he's saying, you know, you should vote for the good guy, and so that it's completely banal, if you like. Uh, what did it do anything? So 
if, if people have really strong ethnic preferences, then this kind of completely you know, anodyne message should do nothing. It's like as close to being, you know, telling people good, do good things. Uh, so we had, along with these posters, there were some puppet shows, but they were equally anodyne, if you like. Um, and what happened? What happened was striking. Uh, the pro probability that you vote for your own caste party went down by 10 percentage points. So, so from 57% went down to 47%. So people were even, and I'm sure this was n not everybody, uh, everybody heard this program, only about, you know, probably a fifth of the village came to the program. So you get this massive swing in who votes for their own, own uh, caste party uh, just by putting up these posters and having a little puppet show. What the point I'm making here is that we often assume that there are immutable forces in the world that you know, you know, caste divisions will, will always divide or ethnic divisions will always divide. That's another cliche we live with. Whereas in fact, somehow my sense is that the reason why people vote on caste is because they have no particular reason to vote on anything else. They have no information. We've done other studies showing that voters have no idea who the candidates are, who's the, they know their names maybe, but they have no idea who's done what, they have no idea of the background. They, they show up once before elections and they all say that we'll do wonderful things for you. So therefore they have no particular objective basis for voting. When you have no idea who these guys are really, then you might as well vote for the one who has the same name as you. It really doesn't, there's no reason to presume that because people are voting based on voting for their own ethnicity, they really want to vote for their own ethnicity. And I think the results from other experiments where people are provided more information suggest exactly that, which is that people are much more willing to move their preferences if you actually give them re really, really hard information. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time, but I will say one, there's a very nice pair of experiments done in, uh, by Leonard, Leonard Wanchekan in Benin. So he did, the first experiment was one where, uh, you know, he had the, the political, uh, the candidates for the presidential election going to some places where they were actually quite strong so that they were, they were not willing, they, they didn't expect to lose those areas and give a speech was, and they randomized the speech. So some places the speech was, uh, I'm, the presidential candidate says, I'm going to do good for everybody in the country. In other areas, he, they go and give a speech which says, uh, I'm going to help you, my brothers only. Okay? When, you, when, you, when they give these two speeches, then they compare the vote shares, he finds clearly that people vote for the person who says, I, I'm going to help you, my brothers. So that was the so that was kind of evidence against this view I'm pushing, uh, suggesting that maybe people do prefer people who have strong kind of ethnic links. A few years later, he did an, another experiment, almost identical, with one important difference. He spent before they make the speech, he had a consultation of with a lot of outside experts of, and each candidate this time instead of saying I'm going to help everyone actually came up with a platform which had content in it which said that we are going to do this, 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 this specific policies. 
When you, and then the same experiment, you go and either you give the speech that I'm going to help you, my brothers, or you say I'm going to do this for the country. Now the results are completely reversed. Why are they reversed? Because now, the last time you were just, it was, that was hot air, you're going to help everyone, nobody believes you. When you said, I will do these specific steps, people actually started believing it. So if you give people content, they're perfectly willing to move away from their prejudices. Prejudices are partly sustained by the fact that the political system doesn't deliver much content. Okay, so I, I, I'm going to stop now, but I want, the, the main, la, the last, in closing, all I want to really say is that I think it's, the, if there's one message from this book, it's the fact that we, we often, um, I mean, there are certainly many, many uh, sort of very deeply structural reasons why, you know, countries are difficult to, you know, have the problems developing. I mean, North Korea right now, I can go and whisper all my messages there, but they, if they don't shoot me, they're, just, uh, they're still not going to change very much. Having said that, there are a whole bunch of countries where we sort of assume that you know, the reason why things are going wrong is because there's something deeply wrong about their politics or their culture or their, uh, their way they are. And my sense is that often that's over, that's, uh, that's sort of, we are putting too much weight on a bunch of cliches. That we, if we actually looked into what's going wrong, it's often much more mundane things. Things where people just start with the wrong presumption, they design the wrong program, they come in with, the, with, they come in with their own ideology, they, uh, they, the things keep going because there's inertia, um, they, they don't actually look at the facts, they design programs in ignorance, so lots of things happen in Bad things happen not because somebody intends bad things to happen, but because we don't do our homework, we don't think hard enough, we're not open-minded enough. And so that's sort of my pitch for uh, a different kind of development economics. Thank you. Thank you, Abhijit. Just let a couple of people leave. We also have an overspill lecture theatre tonight, the Alumni Lecture Theatre. Abhijit's going to take questions in groups of three. So if you are watching in the other lecture theatre and you really want to ask a question, uh, try and make yourselves known in some fashion. Um, and I already see a first hand. Uh, the microphone will come to you. If you could just quickly say your name and keep your questions fairly short. We'll start with somebody halfway up here and then come down here and the gentleman in the front for the first three. Thank you, Professor Banerjee. Wonderful, wonderful presentation. A lot of great ideas. Question. Um, a lot of examples come from India. What do you make of what is perceived by most of the press and a lot of elites and maybe even normal people as the greatest poverty uh, alleviation of our generation, which is the rise of China, which is more like a macro, a macro development causing a lot of poor people to no longer be so poor. India, I guess, is like the second version of that story. So is that another version of poor economics from a macro level as opposed to from the grounds, the grounds up experimental insights? Thank you. 
Hi, um, my name is Rachel. Um, I have a question about the public sector. One of you said that, in general, among the poor, what they most wanted for their children was for them to work in in the government. Should this lead us to rethink the, the standard view of the kind of the bloated uh, public sector in developing countries, and instead could see it as a response to a kind of demand from ground up for jobs, which often the private sector simply cannot uh, provide? Young lady there. Hello, Tatiana Tima, University of Cambridge. Um, thank you for your talk. I, I really enjoyed it, and I just wanted to. I guess press on two small points. One in the category of health, given that immunization shots are a one-off kind of service, I was wondering what you thought about things that relate to public health, like the huge debates around sanitation and public toilets, and whether those should be, um, you know, pay, pay-per-use models and whatnot. There's been a lot of work done both in India and, and Kenya. Um, and the second point was about the um, issue of entrepreneurship. I'm grounding the question a little bit more in my, f- my own field site, which is Nairobi, Kenya. But it seems to me that there is a kind of generational rift that maybe wasn't addressed in the way you've, you framed the idea of entrepreneurship as a kind of, in terms of its limits to growth. And w- one of the things I observed, and I wondered if you could comment on it, was that the limits to growth was a very much grounded in perception of social exclusion if one did too well, especially in urban slums. Um, and the second small point being that there was a kind of uh, deliberate break-off of the perception of parents' definitions of proper employment and work and the kind of y- urban youth call to being self-employed and even creating their own niche informal economies around waste and recycling economies and so on. So just uh, those two points. Um, so all excellent questions. Um, on China, I, I, I think the thing that I keep saying, I say, always say the same thing about China, which is that I think China is so far from anything that anybody could think of replicating that it's, I don't feel like there's a, I mean, if you think of what happened in China, China, China started, you know, made very substantial investments in I would say what I would call social infrastructure, sanitation, health, education, under communism, then went to an extremely free market economy, much more free market than most, with very little labor protection, and um, did that under a setting of, you know, remarkably coercive policies like, for example, the one-child policy, which uh, I don't think most countries could implement, for, for a variety of reasons, uh, which had a huge effect on the savings rates. Uh, we did some work on that. I think 14% is the number. I think we, our estimate was 14 percentage points of savings came from the one-child policy. So they did a set of things which are so far from being replicable that I don't see that as being, you know, they'll exist at any point of time one country that's going to do extremely well. That happened to be for a very long time, those were small countries. Then it turned, happened to be a once a big country. It's go- and that's great. It's wonderful that it happened. But it's not that we, I don't think of that as being something we can immediately learn lessons from. What we can learn lessons from is, you know, it was good that China had the human capital it had when it, when it started. Uh, um, you know, when it opened up to markets. How did it get the human capital? It made a set of strategic investments, mostly under communism, actually, a bunch of them. Uh, how did those, uh, how can 
those investments be made effect effectively in Kenya? That's the question. So if, I think we don't know how to make Kenya grow like China. We, we know what we, sh we need if Kenya has to grow at all, which is Kenya has to have decent human capital, reasonable amount of social and physical infrastructure. So we know, know what the necessary conditions are. Um, the best we can do is design policies to provide those necessary conditions and then God knows why growth happens in one place and not another. If you ask any economist in 1980 that whether a Chinese economy where something like 65% of all capital is owned by the state, um, the state ownership of capital has not really fallen for the last 20 years. Uh, we have a paper on that. Um, and uh, the uh, entire banking sector is in the hands of the state. Was that the, going to be the fastest growing economy in the world? All economists 25 years ago would have told you, you, you have to be kidding. That, that economy is going to collapse any day. Um, uh, or most economists, at least of the more mainstream kind, would have told you that. What happened in China, nobody could have predicted. I mean, given the institutional constraints in China. Give, uh, given that, I don't think of it as being a replicable experiment. That's sort of, so I think we should try to solve problems we, we, we think uh, are kind of generic in different places, rather than um, you know, aspire to, I mean, we all should aspire to grow as fast as China. But I don't know whether that it's, that's an option that for most countries. Um, on the public sector, I, it's an interesting question. I, in the book, we, we talk not so much about the public sector as much as about good jobs. And I think the idea of whether the idea, whether flexibility in the labor market is oversold, as against the idea that some jobs need to have some quality at least, that that might be, it may be more important to have jobs which have some quality so that you know you feel that you have a stable source of earnings, you can send your children to school, you can invest in the future, whether that's more important than flexibility. That's a question I don't know the answer to, but I certainly think that the evidence points uh, in the direction of starting to worry about that question. People have too long taken as, assume that flexibility has to be the right answer, I think. Um, on the uh, public toilets, that's a, I think that's a difficult one, we have actually, tried to do something about it, and it's, I can't say that I fully understood. I mustn't, won't say anything about it. It's, it's, a, it's a very, let's say, mucky issue. Uh, <laughs> uh, entrepreneurship. I, do, I think that you're right. There's all kinds of things. Like, I mean, I think recycling, I've also seen the, uh, you know, oh, when I worked work with this um, MM microfinance organizer Spandana, they would always trot out all their visitors, this, their champion uh, uh, borrower who was a recycling specialist. There just isn't that much money in that business. There is some, but if you look at how many people relative to the population of India could be in the recycling business and make reasonable living as against, so, this one woman was making a pretty good living. She was living off the labors of many people who were collecting the, uh, these recyclables, and they were making a pathetic living. And so I, I don't see that as being many different. It's another of these self-limited businesses that don't really go anywhere. You, you're still going to be extremely poor. I, I just, I, I've never, I've not seen, I don't see that as being, I think there is some, 
I mean, I think all of these things are important. What you said, I think, also is right that I think people might very well care about, uh, you know, not becoming too rich. But to be honest, um, if you look at even within the slums of Nairobi, enormous inequality exists already, um, mostly driven by having government jobs. I think that's the biggest driver. Some people get it, and they're just much richer than others. Um, um, like government menial jobs, but even those are. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Uh, so many questions. We're going to start at the back and come around and then do this group next time. So right at the back, there's a gentleman there. We'll take two of you over that side. Thank you. Uh, you talked earlier about schooling and the problem of the colonial system, I think you blamed, perhaps. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering really whether that's the only factor, particularly in India, I think you were referring to. What about actually getting teachers into those schools, the right level you, of funding? I can't uh, hear about you. teacher absenteeism. Yeah, teacher, teacher absenteeism is my question, so, so in, and India in particular. Okay. Good, good question. We have a couple of questions over this side. Gentleman with a purple shirt, and then the person that's got the mic, I think. Well, looks there's got a mic, maybe not. Hi, um, my name is Carlos. Um, I just wanted to know if, it might sound a silly question, but um, what are you, have you said about the poor seems to be that um, you want to demystify uh, what we think about them as something alien or, uh, or a separate species uh, of humanity. And what I, I would ask myself if, if these experiments could apply to the poor in developed countries rather than in poor, in poor countries. Excellent question. Gentleman with a purple shirt, so tucked up against the wall, please. And you've had your hand a long time, you're definitely going to get called. <laughs> Professor Banerjee, like your model of economics, which is grounded on reality rather than theory, um, did you get a sense of why the guy invested or consumed entertainment rather than the extra money on food when he actually said he would do it on food? Do you think that the perception of hunger is different in perhaps the Western world where most of us are preoccupied fighting an obesity crisis? Uh, okay. Um, so, this is a recent uh, randomized experiment of uh, giving vouchers to people, uh, children, to go to private schools in India. Um, fines. I would say, let's say the generous interpretation of the results is that there's a zero effect on, on <laughs> test scores. Uh, that's the generous interpretation. You could s almost say that they made it worse. Um, they, so I, I think that incentives are a piece of the story, but the private schools have plenty of incentives. They're, the teachers are working hard. I think the entire system is focused. So what go goes up in the private schools? English. Now, how much English do these people know? Nothing. So they learn a little bit of English, a few words of English, so you get a big gain in English. What goes down? Math and the local language. Uh, those are things which they potentially can learn. They are much better at, and those go down. Um, that's reflecting exactly this idea that the systemic expectations are all wrong. The idea of schooling should teach you English, uh, which is given the resources in available in the school, particularly the teachers don't know any English, it's a difficult task to achieve. Uh, 
So that's that's absolutely uh, so. My answer to your question is surely there's an incentive problem, but even with incentives, the energies are misdirected uh, very clearly. Um, I'm, I'm saying even when they turn up, they don't actually do much. That's the private school teachers turn up all the time, and they don't do any better. This is a voucher experiment where some kids who were going to government school got a voucher to go to private schools, and that didn't change the test scores. So basically, my point is exactly that I'm sure you're right that better incentives would be good, but these private school teachers have plenty of incentives. They just start they're, they're driving for something else. They're trying to achieve goals which are, I think, unachievable. And I think that's the core problem. Um, poor in developed countries, I, so, the, so here's the, the answer is, are they similar or are they not? I think fundamentally, I think we are all similar. Uh, and I think the, at the core of, of uh, a lot of what poverty does to people is is uh, the fact that it's poverty is stressful. It's a lot of problems you have to solve. Things aren't going well. You're constantly worrying. And when you're worrying about one problem, you often take bad decisions about other problems. That's the, that's that what that's what makes it really difficult. Is that if you're stressed, you often make. Uh, bad decisions in different directions. And I think that's very consistent with my reading of what, what happens in, in developed countries, that poor people are seen as taking not ideal life decisions, like making not ideal life choices, and I think that has something to do with being feeling the, hum the humiliation of being poor, the stress of being poor, all of those are important. Now, having said that, is it identical? No, because I think there's a sense in which it's still a lot of problems that poor in poor countries so have to solve every day are taken out of the hands of the you know of the poor in developed countries for example in england when you open the tap you get clean water in india if you're poor and you or in kenya or in mali uh, you have to go walk to a spring fill your uh, your um, container with water, come, come home, and then if you want it to be clean, you'll have to boil it or put something in it, uh, Clorox, uh, chlorine in it or something like that, and wait for 20 minutes. And you know, it's a, it's a whole operation to get clean water. Whereas in England, even if you're poor, you run your tap, you get water. So there are senses in which, or if you want, you get a decent school, you know, maybe not a great school, but you get a decent school in your neighborhood. There's senses in which if the poor in rich countries do not have to solve a set of problems that the, their counterparts in poor countries do. Um, last, why was he invested in entertainment? I think he, he, was, he was just thought life was boring. We had a lot of conversations. He said, look, life is very boring. I mean, what do I do? I have three friends. We, we each go to each other's houses and watch TV together. That's all we can. That's really, I mean, it's really, it's as bluntly as that, he said. It's just life is boring. And I, I mean, you know, I think he has to live. I mean, he can't just invest in nutrition because in the future he's going to be stronger and that's going to make him more productive. So I, I feel like it's, Perfectly rational what he was doing, but but just uh, maybe different. 
I'm going to go over here. If there is anybody from the Alumni Theatre that wants to come in, burst in the back, preferably wearing a daffodil so that I recognise you, please ask a question. Otherwise, we'll start down here. Hi, good evening. Uh, from what you shared, it appears that a lot of economic policies to alleviate poverty can be made extraordinarily effective just by understanding the psychology of the poor. And you stressed a lot on the, work, uh, on the word psychology. So my question is, do you think uh, that a lot of your work at JPEL can be carried on in tandem with social psychological research? And uh, the question is like more gripping to me, maybe because I'm a student of social psychology at LSE. We'll, we'll take a couple more from the middle this time. We'll go over there afterwards, if there are any in the middle. Right at the back, the second row from the back. Somebody's got the hand up, please. Otherwise, yeah, we'll take you. Yeah, if you could just wait for the one at the back. Yep, please. Um, thank you. I think it's um, really extraordinary what randomized control trials can show how effective policy is, but it can also be quite expensive. Um, to have the expertise to be able to do these experiments and how do you um, suggest that poor developing countries can use randomized control trials to um, make policies better but at the same time um, use it without it being so expensive if, if that's sort of a, a dilemma that they might face. Thank you. Thank you for a great lecture. Um, this book changed the way I thought about sort of poverty and things quite a lot and I was just wondering if you've seen the same impacts with policymakers and things. If you obviously you know you're involved with a lot of you know great organisations, and uh, just wondering what you've you know what you've seen as the impact of the book sort of since it's been received. Um, so on the psychology of the poor, I think yes, I think I think we need people who are, who are. Uh, well trained in economics and social psychology. I think the, the, the point is that in the end you'll have to design things that uh, will work in an economic sense. They have to have some economic uh, viability. So I feel like you should next stick um, courses in economics. Expensive RCTs. I, I think they're expensive, but you know, programs are infinitely more expensive. Bad programs are so expensive. I, 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 I must say that you know, we, we, we sort of forget the order of magnitude for I mean, poor countries. So, so I want to say two things. One is what I already said, which is that I, I, I mean, you know, policy mistakes are hugely expensive. Um, you you know you just like throwing money down the drain. It's not, I mean the wrong the the corollary to the fact that you have to get the policy right by knowing the context is that if and understanding what the problem is and trying to solve that problem is if you solve the wrong problem you get nothing for it and that's that's that uh, you know that's sort of the um, the corollary of that same thing, and I, I, I feel I worry a lot that uh, if we didn't, uh, I think this idea that somehow um, you know maybe we just you know figure out uh, uh, somehow in, in, intuitively figure out what's right is just um, hasn't worked very well. I mean, I think we have many many uh, intuitive. Uh, theories going around, and most of them sadly have not uh, done very well. I think there's a, there's a sense in which it would be better to put some discipline in the process. Now, having said that, uh, I don't mean that every country should do 
an RCT on every policy. I mean, the whole point of a learning agenda is to learn from other people, ideally. So you don't you want to look at solutions which have worked in other places. You, the point about context is that context defines what the institutional specificities are. But once you understand what you're trying to do, you, the, the concept is often translatable into different institutional contexts. And so you, don't, you want to learn from elsewhere. You definitely don't want to do your, every program has its own RCT. You want to aggregate knowledge. You want to build on what's known. And uh, so I think the way to save money is to, to, to have um, you know, a sort of a, a coordinated process of knowledge building so that you know, no one country has to learn everything on its own. Um, on the policymaker impact, you know, I, I'm. I think that there's a set of policymakers who have read our book and who seem to be, who then write to us and say, "Well, we would like to work with you." Is that a huge, huge number? No, but is, is there a, a group of people who have read it and who are, who are? Um, maybe um, you know, not zero, not two thousand. But uh, you know, there are a bunch of people <laughs> who have. And that's, I mean, we're grateful for whatever we can get. Uh. Right. I, we've probably got time for one or two last sets of questions. But we'll, we'll come down at the bottom on this side, please. Unless there's anybody coming from the alumni, the aider at the back. Uh, one, two, three. I think. Yeah. Uh, hello. My name is Andrea. Um, a very difficult and important issue with randomized control trials is then scaling them up and uh, designing uh, policies that can work in a whole region, in a whole country, and so on. So if you could comment on that, how it works, and successful examples, and so on. Hi, my name is Matthew. Um, one of the uh, questions, or one of the things, demographic trends you see in poor countries is that as they become wealthier, they begin to urbanize. And I'm very curious, you haven't really, uh, you didn't really talk very much about the split between the urban and rural settlements and sort of if there are any challenges or opportunities that the poor in an urban slum face that are different than somebody in more rural environments. Hi, my name is Payal. I want to ask about uh, voting and ethnicity. Uh, Apart from puppet shows and uh, posters, what do you think should be hard information that voters should get and who should give it, considering the large amount of illiteracy that exists in rural, amongst rural electorates? Thank you. So um, I think the question of scaling them up is uh, mostly, I think, it's uh, I don't think there is any deep mystery there. I think it's a, it's a, it's something people, uh, because most programs that eva get evaluated are already at some sense scalable. They're already unitary because otherwise you can't really randomize them. So you know they have to be at some level, at the village level or at the school level. So they they are unitary programs. I think there's nothing. I mean there are all kinds of political decisions to be made. To, to do it, but I, I don't see it as being, but there's no point evaluating a program that's already not unitary, so that you can't replicate it within, you know, if you can't replicate it, it's not really a program yet. So I, I think of that as being slightly, I mean, there's 
sometimes you know when you go to scale maybe uh, there are price effects or something. You might worry that uh, maybe if I educate everybody, the return on education will go down. And that's the kind of thing that um, people have tried to take into account when they do uh, RCTs. Um, so they try to randomize both at the town level and within the town so that they get both the, they take into account what happens when everybody in the town gets uh, more education, what happens to wages. So that's, uh, that's, that's I think the important bit. The, so the mechanical bit I don't think is that different from already what's available. I don't think it's, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm not sure I am answering your question, but I don't see it as being a huge problem um, as such. Uh, urbanization, I think mostly I don't say anything about it because I think it's something that I'm only beginning to uh, learn more about. I think the what, why people migrate and don't migrate, I think is something that's actually interestingly, I mean there was a long literature which is sort of assumed that people will migrate whenever the returns are there. And I think most of the evidence suggests that they don't. It's a very nice experiment in Bangladesh where they give every f a bunch of families in Rongpur, which is in the north of Bangladesh, uh, a, a ticket, a bus, equivalent of a bus ticket to the, uh, to, to, I think, to, to the capital city. And when you do that, uh, you see that, you know, uh, people earn much more when, when they get the bus ticket, the average, average consumption of food goes up massively. Uh, this is during the famine season, I should say. So d during a season when people are genuinely really hungry. So you do see the effects on, on food consumption. They are, you see about 700 calories per head per day, more consumption. So you see massive effects on consumption. Um, why would they, why were they not doing that on their own? I mean, if they can, you can get such big gains, I mean, uh, why can't you somehow save up to get a bus ticket? It's not so much money. So it's something we don't actually understand why people are so reluctant to go. And I think the hypothesis is that, you know, people are just worried that when they go to the city, they won't find anything. And once they come back, uh, after the first time, they keep going back. So you do see, it seems like there's a, just a fear of, of the urban, urban, which is driving a lot of that. But that's, I think it's a general area where we don't, I mean, we don't understand why many more people in many, uh, haven't moved to the cities, in, even in the U.S. I mean, this has been a long-term puzzle on, on the sort of the fact that people don't seem to move as much as you would have expected based on economic returns. So it's something that I think needs much more work. Um, on the, on the uh, last question, um, I think there's lots of information that's relatively easy to get. Uh, we did an experiment where um, we worked with an NGO that basically collected committee attendance data. So did you go start the committees that you were supposed to come start? So the most important committee and that was the Fair Price Shop Committee. The committee, local committee that maintains fair price shops, make sure that they're not cheating. So that committee, um, some of the legislators had never, they were in charge of the local committee, but they never actually constituted it. So they didn't have a committee. Others had 
done it and run it. And when people find that out, they vote against the people who have done, haven't done it. So there's lots of information around, I think, like that, which you can provide. This was published in the newspaper, basically. Um, the Hindi newspaper, Hindustan, published it. Um, and the places where uh, this was published, people were much less likely to vote for the incumbent than where they did. did. So it's, I think this lots actually surprisingly easy to get. Like, where did they spend their money? Did they spend their, you know, when they made any uh, in initiatives, were they pro-rich or pro-poor? These kinds of things, are, in terms of money spending, is easily available. In the it's from the right to information in India, you can get the, that information. So at least in India, there's lots of information that doesn't get used. Thanks. Well, we've reached eight o'clock very quickly. Um, just before I vote, uh, offer a formal vote of thanks, can I let you know that um, copies of the book by uh, Abhijit and Esther will be available for sale outside the lecture theatre afterwards, but Abhijit is going to sit here to sign them. So you've got to go out, get the book, and come back in, which will allow him to sign my copy first. Um, I would like to, first of all, thank LSE Events once again for putting on this event. It's out of term here at LSE, but once again we've got Full House, which of course is testimony to you, Abhijit, but also to the fact that we do have the best public event series in Europe, possibly beyond that, so thanks to the staff. Uh, secondly, thanks to everybody that asked questions tonight, because they were nice and sharp and short, which allowed many questions and many answers. Uh, but most of all, on your behalf, I think we'd all like to thank Abhijit. Uh, Abhijit and Esther and their colleagues at JPAL, I think, have been an inspiration for many of us that work in the field of development. So thanks very much for being here. Tonight.